Welcome back to Emory's Creativity Conversations podcast. This is our third season with these introductory interviews taking place virtually. This podcast takes Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, a live endowed speaker series on Emory's campus and turns them into podcasts. I'm Maggie Becker, the host and producer of this podcast. I work for Arts at Emory and I'm an Emory alum of theater studies and creative writing. We are recording this season's interviews over Zoom to maintain COVID-19 social distancing precautions. I'm joined today by Stipe Scholar and Emory artist Leah Beam to introduce the creativity conversation called Empowering Creativity, Bridging Life and Art with Daria Halperin and Sue Schroeder discussing. The point of these introductions is to provide an exciting way to continue the conversation on creativity. Leah and I will chat about Daria and Sue's thoughts, Leah's own work, and creating in general. Leah, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. I'm Leah. I'm going to be a senior this year at Emory. I'm majoring in dance as well as anthropology. I'm from Potomac, Maryland. I I love to dance, of course. It's one of my majors, my passion, and I love to hang out with my friends and my family, my dogs, all of that, especially this quarantine. (laughs) So why did you pick this conversation? I picked this conversation because it obviously included dance and I did want to pick a conversation that included dance. Beyond that, I knew that this conversation had some sort of experimental element at the end just from hearing about it from some of my friends that went to this conversation in the past. Also, Anna Halperin, who's Daria's mother, was one of the creators and mothers of postmodern dance. And I'm really interested in that form of modern dance and that era of modern dance. So I thought it would be just interesting to see her daughter, even if it wasn't necessarily connected at all to that topic. I also just overall like the title of the conversation, Bridging Art and Life, because I think everyone should consider this more than I think most do other than people that are artists. So I just think that it's a nice broad title, but also something that I could imagine would have a lot of meat in there. That's great. I have already two thoughts about this. First of all, I love that you like this thing about life and art because those are kind of your majors. Anthropology is the study of humanity. And then dance is, is its own form. And I also think people forget that art is really like the study of ourselves. And, and dance is a great study of both emotion and the body. And then the second thing is for us non-dancers, what is, in your own words, postmodern dance? I don't want to get this wrong. I mean, I don't think I'm going to get it wrong, but you know, (laughs) bear with me. I'm not reading a definition, but it's basically this transitional kind of period, like a different era of uh, modern dance overall, where people decided to include more pedestrian movement, more things that anyone and everyone could do. It sort of started this idea that anyone and everyone can dance, that you can use any movement, anything weird, anything super technical, like everything was in this umbrella term we call dance and it funneled into the postmodern movement. 
So what has been your journey as someone in dance? Did you start out in classical like ballet and come and make your way to this like very more experimental and free and and I almost kind of imagine accepting form of dance. I did a little bit of dancing as a, a ballerina and I found that It was just so, while I loved the technique, very restrictive on my mind. It was like I saw what other ballerinas looked like and I felt a lot of pressure to like look exactly like those ballerinas. Yeah, so I have danced for pretty much my whole life. In middle school and high school, I was a competition dancer. So that's more of a, you know, dance moms kind of thing, you know, jazz, lyrical, still contemporary modern was in there. Um, So I wasn't as much of a, ballet kind of person but overall in the Emory dance program no matter what your background is the just the program overall and what they foster in us and teach us is very freeing as you said and I definitely can relate it back to the conversation just that dance can be for you versus for someone else as people would think about ballet as being performative, very strict, same similar to competition dance, very about performing, super performative in the face, in the sharpness of the movement, all of that. But modern dance overall, and especially what we do in the Emory Dance Program is super freeing, interpretive in a way. You can express yourself, yet still learn these techniques of modern dance. That's what's great about it. What are some projects that you have been working on? During quarantine, I'm going to be honest, I haven't been doing much of anything (laughs) like a lot of people. I did want to just mention, I think that for people that are using this time to explore specifically dance and continue researching dance within this time, it's definitely something that's necessary and valid, I guess. But I also think that there's sometimes this pressure, especially, I guess, in the beginning of this pandemic to use this time to do things, to create especially in the arts, stuff like that. But I also think it's valid to use this time as a reflection period to think about who you are as an artist, who you want to be, not necessarily forcing yourself to create right now. So I did just want to put that out there. So I haven't been doing anything specifically huge projects recently. I was supposed to choreograph for the Emory Dance Company this past spring. That obviously didn't happen, so we moved to switching our pieces to Dance for Films. It explored the distinction between a group and the self and how these may intersect. Basically, when I was creating, slowly worked with my dancers to realize this group think that we have as a society and how sometimes when we are in certain situations, it it feels as though you've lost some individuality. But at other times when you're on your own, you really want to be in a group. And that's sort of what I highlighted on when I switched to Dance for Film is that right now we're looking around and we're alone we may want to be in a group and want to connect with people and we might not be able to do so in the same way as we wanted to. As I was creating and deciding how to switch over 
to a dance for film, I was definitely defeated. I definitely had to think of it as something therapeutic for me. And I wanted to finish it all, tie it all together, use myself and my feelings on everything and interpret it and put it in to this dance for film that I created, which is a lot of what they talk about in this creativity conversation, just about how dance is for everyone. Dance can be used as therapy, dance for healing. I think that a lot of the time dancers forget that that is necessary. And that is a lot of why we want and need to dance. So I felt that that helped me through change, all of the change that happened So I love that you took this approach to step back a little bit from that need, the almost requirement to create during the quarantine. And I wondered, you are a dancer, so your body is your instrument, just like your mind is your tool as well. Wondered what you did, if anything, to help you still feel connected to your body, even if you weren't necessarily being like, all right, now I'm going to choreograph a piece and then I'm going to dance the piece and then I'm, you know, what was kind of how did you find and stay? connected with your instrument? In the beginning of quarantine, I was still taking my dance classes. They were online, so it was obviously different, but I still had that. And then as I slowly weaned off of that, I did take a break kind of from creating, dancing, because as the semester ended, I submitted my dance for film. I finished up my dance classes and it did feel nice to let some stuff go because it was even more stressful kind of forcing, especially in the beginning, it felt like I was forcing this dance for film out of me, forcing my ideas to switch into this dance for film. But I still do some just warm up kind of dance stuff and even just stuff with my family, going on walks, small workouts, Stuff like that, I honestly think is valid enough for, you know, like it will suffice. I really do think in this time that connecting with your body doesn't even have to be about moving in this grand way. It can be just sitting somewhere, rolling your shoulders back a couple times, doing the most simple things just to remember that your brain is a part of your body and those two are connected. You don't have to create or perform even in the slightest, to be a dancer or stay connected to your body. You can do that anywhere, anytime, even just like looking down at yourself, walking around, remembering what you want to do and not doing too much or too little, but just reflecting on how you feel. Thank you so much for taking that time to talk with me and share your craft. To our listeners, please enjoy this creativity conversation. It's been edited down from the original recording. So if you'd like to take a look at the original experience, then that YouTube link will be in the description of this episode. really amazing to be in a circle in this space with all the energy that I know you're going to bring to this experience. My name is Lori Teague. I'm the director of the dance program. Next person I want to introduce is Sue Schroeder. Sue is the artistic director of Core Performance Company. Um, y'all are in your 30, or 38th year, which is, I, I want to applaud that. 
Insurance Company in this city, and she has really mentored me. She's a phenomenal teacher. I feel like you build community, you are creating community in this event. So she is really the catalyst for bringing in Daria Hopper. If you haven't already, out of just curiosity, gone to the website about Daria, I'll tell you a little bit more about her. She is a dancer, a poet, a teacher, phenomenal teacher, an author, and is among the leading pioneers in the field of movement and dance education and therapy. Her work bridges the fields of somatic psychology, movement and dance therapy, expressive arts therapy, community-based arts and health education, organizational consulting, leadership development, social change, and performance. Good gracious. <laughs> yeah. She has some wonderful books that she's published, and you also may know that she's kin to someone. She's the daughter of Anna Halpern, if you know who that is. Mm -hmm. uh, without further ado, you're about to experience a talk between these two wonderful women. So to begin with, when you came in, uh, one of Daria's books is there, and you can glance at it, on it, about it, uh, take a picture of it, get it on Amazon. We've all read it in our work together. Uh, we actually went out to Mount Studio, which is where Daria and Anna work quite often, and had a, a one-day experience with Daria almost two years ago. And we were so moved and excited by the work that it took a while. But two years later, here we're back to, and the original group is working with Daria this week. So we are fully immersed and wanted to share the process outside of our studio where we're doing the deep dive, but to also include you all in this really incredible, incredible work and body of work that Daria's doing. So to begin with, we talk a lot about in the studio, and you do, about the relationship between movement and metaphor, and that's a real strong basis of your work. So can you give this audience a little bit of an understanding of how that plays out in the body and in the work? One of the things that I'm interested in, and that is at the core of our practice, our approach to movement and the expressive arts, is the notion that dance and art has a very profound relationship with not only our personal history, but also what's going on in the world around us. And so we began really in the 60s developing a way of, of working with dance and reaching out to others with dance education and dance art making to develop ways where dance could be about the real things that are going on in people's lives. So the notion of working with movement as metaphor really speaks to that. It speaks to a way in which how we move and how we dance and what we make our dances about has a profound relationship with the real things that are going on in our lives. Now, uh, how many of you have heard of movement therapy? Who hasn't? That might be a better question. Okay. So perhaps what I'm saying sounds a little bit like movement therapy, does it? Where what you're working on in movement has a direct relationship with the things that are going on in your life? Maybe it sounds a little bit like that? Well, in some ways it is a little bit like that, and yet one of the things that we're after in our approach to dance and that we've been researching and developing over well over 40 years has to do with a way to make a living bridge between artistic practice and, if you will, 
the psychological aspect of our lives. And one of the things that I try to do in particular is to break down barriers between different fields and different worlds. Probably why my bio sounds so long in terms of the kinds of places that I've had the opportunity to teach and really learn from. And so the notion of movement metaphor for me and in our work, it includes, if you will, the psychological aspect that is very much at the heart of metaphor making, which might sound like a new idea for some of you, that the notion of metaphor can allow movement to become a psychological endeavor. Does that make any sense to you? So metaphor means it is like. How is it like? So that would look like or sound like, how is my movement right now connected to other things in my life? How can I dance about something that's troubling me? And how can I do it not only from a directly, literally kind of therapeutic kind of a way, but through creativity and art when we work with metaphor, we're bringing an artistic or an aesthetic or art-based orientation to our thinking. I'm thinking about something that uh, I ran across something that Albert Einstein said about dance, which really excited the hell out of me. Because I'm thinking about, particularly in new science, metaphor has become a really important aspect of the new science. And it's not dissimilar from bringing metaphor into a way of working with movement and dance and all kinds of art. That what is true in science is also true in all aspects of life, in the feeling body even. And so metaphor has also allowed bridges between different fields of endeavor to be, to be made. So here's what Albert Einstein said, apparently. <laughs> we dance for what we are afraid of. We dance for our tears. We dance for our anger. We dance for our hopes. We dance for our dreams. We dance for our screams. Mm -hmm. We are the dancers, and we're dancing our dreams. That's remarkable, isn't it, from Albert Einstein? Who knew he was a dancer? That's a metaphor me. And that really speaks to uh, something very precious, I think, in, in the way that I've discovered movement and dance and art making can really touch people in all aspects of their daily lives. It can be a way for us to work with what disturbs us, to, to work with what we long for, uh, to work on our individual autobiographical material and also to work on what's happening in our communities. I find it fascinating how this work informs not only community-based work and whatever community you bridge into many yourself, as, as do I, but also the opportunities, the possibilities for the art making itself as it heads towards the performative state. Mm -hmm. And so there's this really rich aspect of material that has us improvising in the developing movement possibilities in very organic ways, very authentic ways of moving that then develop, if you're going to go the 
performative route. So that's that's what's really fascinating and exciting for me in this body of work. Which leads me to you speak about it in your in, in the book that you have here. What was your journey to this? How did you arrive here to this work? You're a dancer, you're a poet, you're an author. How did you begin? Where does that come from? That real thread to begin this journey for you? Well, that's my autobiography. I do want to come back to the business about performance, too. Okay. So let's hold that in our pockets. Okay. I'm just curious, too, because I want to know a little bit more about who all of you are. Who, who am I talking to? Where are you coming from? Uh, what are your interests and what do you know? How many of you are performance artists? How many of you have studied somatics and maybe even you're a somatic practitioner? Some of the same people raise their hands, I just noticed. How many of you are scientists or mathematicians? Hey, hey. Now you know that scientists are dancers too. How many of you are educators? A lot of overlap. How many of you are architects? I ask that because the body is an incredible piece of architecture, an incredible piece of architecture. And it's also a living library, and I'm going to talk about my autobiography, I haven't forgotten. It's also a living library of our entire life experience, our history, our present tense, our aspirations for the future. So it's this, it's this kind of architectural house we're living in. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in, no matter what we call our field of interest or practice, is how are we living in this incredible home called body? How are we living with ourselves? How are we living with others? How are we experiencing the world around us? The way that it started for me was that I, I was born into a lineage of artists. My father also is an, was an environmental Lawrence Halpern, some of you may have heard of him. Great environmental designer and city planner. My mother was Anna Halpern. Is, and she still is. <laughs> she still is Anna. She's 98 years old. Wow. Yes. And so I was raised in this kind of environment. This was the architecture of my life. So I experienced a lot of extraordinary things in the culture that I was born into and raised in. I was trained as a dancer, and I was trained by my father as well to, uh, to really get be curious about the environment, the physical environment that we live in. Also trained uh, to look for intersections between the arts and between uh, different fields. But just like most other people, because that all sounds very awesome and cool, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So just like many other folks, I also had a wild ride with my upbringing. And there were things about it that were very out of balance and out of alignment, as can be very typical of, of the artistic life, right? So I grew up you know, with this question of, in what way can art and leading an artist's life also make sense, make some kind of psychological sense? Because it didn't always for me. And I was surrounded by a lot of extraordinary stimulation, some of which was quite wonderful and quite creative, and some of it was just mad. <laughs> now, at a certain point, 
in my autobiography, I experienced certain things that had me thinking that the smart thing to do was to reject dance and art because it seemed to me that it just kept getting me and everybody else I was around at that time into an awful lot of trouble. So I thought, oh, the answer is don't dance and walk away from the artist. And so I tried to do that for a while. But there's something about dance and art that once it's got you in its grip, it doesn't necessarily want to let you go. Have any of you noticed that? <laughs> It occurred to me, because of the kind of shape I was in and the questions that I had and the trouble that I had gotten myself into, that I should somehow or another try to figure out something about this brokenness that I was experiencing and these challenging relationships that I seemed to keep getting myself into. This was the 60s, by the way. So, it was a time and it was a culture where a lot of that was going on. We were experimenting, we were busting out all of our fuses, we were pushing all kinds of boundaries. I was raised in an artistic environment that had done just that. And then I carried it on into all kinds of other aspects of that. To some extent, it's a typical artist story, perhaps. And so I decided that my answer was to study psychology. I thought maybe that would help me mend my pieces. And so I studied psychology, but because of my inclinations, I kept leaning into the alternative psychologies. It was the 60s and the 70s. I'm 70 years old now. So I studied with a remarkable man named Fritz Perls, who founded Gestalt Therapy. Have any of you heard of it? Yeah. You know, here I'm trying to get away from art, and I pick a form of psychology that's very enactment-based. It's very theatrical. It's very embodied. I pick an, an extraordinarily charismatic man to train with who's just wild and loves working with dancers. And so I did that for a long time, and I kept finding other routes to take in terms of uh, looking for a way to dance with my own psychological makeup. And I was also looking for some kind of contribution to me and a working path. And so finally it occurred to me that maybe what I needed to do was to bring these two longings together, these two passions together, these two worlds together, and these two fields together. I was also very blessed to be part of an institute named Tamalpa Institute. So eventually, in the 70s, an <coughs> institute was born out of all of this kind of searching and researching, and my mother and I co-founded it together. She was very much staying on the artistic track, but also she became interested in movement and dance as a healing force. She developed cancer, and it almost it almost killed her, and it changed her body radically. And so she began to use dance as a way to heal her cancer. And by heal, we meant not to get rid of it or to fix it because she followed Western medicine, but to find a way to live through it and to build resiliency in her body and to help her accept a changed body as a result. And so she began to use this phrase of dance as a healing force. 
and at the same time I was interested in researching how I in particular could use movement and dance and expressive arts. I worked a lot with narrative and visual art as well and, the and theater enactment as a way for people to work on their autobiographical material, on their family histories, and to work collaboratively in groups and community in order to bump up against each other and be and evoke each other and inspire each other and trigger each other off and then kind of see what we could make out of it. Just to distinguish it a moment more in the movement and expressive art. Well, in the field of anybody, has anybody uh, ever been exposed to a field called expressive arts therapy? So uh, it's actually based in very very old, even indigenous practices, and not only indigenous, but even in Western culture, uh, the notion of using the arts for therapy is 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 really an ancient tradition. Uh, also, after World War One, when soldiers were coming out of, of the war and were incredibly traumatized, mm -hmm. the arts were used to help respond to trauma. Music, in particular at that time, and later on movement as well. So expressive arts therapy uses uh, what we used to call interdisciplinary arts, or multimodal arts. That's what was, term was term yeah. But most of us know it more as interdisciplinary arts. And that's where you're using the arts in an integrated kind of cross-pollinating way. So in our practice, I began to develop a system back in the 70s where we use movement and dance, and we also use visual art. So uh, I developed uh, what I call uh, an art-based mantra in our practice, where we work with movement and dance, and we work with visual art, and we work with narrative, spoken, sung, written, and that's our kind of interdisciplinary model that I began to develop in the early 70s. And, and then in the 70s, Concurrently, the first department, university department uh, was developed in expressive arts therapy. And anytime that happens, that means you really hit the mainstream. And it's like, oh, great, they've got a department now. And it started actually in Leslie College, but uh, was started by some colleagues of mine. And so there was this movement to begin to codify this field called expression arts therapy. Which for me is the distinguishing factor. Uh, with the dance therapy versus uh, versus, but distinguishes it as a, the expressive arts where there's that interdisciplinary model, yes. which is so powerful in action. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. So. And it also, I feel, one of the things that we're after is to make movement in the expressive arts really available to everyone. I have this idea that by working in many different art forms, you make it more user friendly. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, an aspect of what happens in terms of a creative process when you're using more than one art in relationship to each other. And each art medium has its particular way of being expressive and of expressing what the autobiographical material is. Some people feel more fluent in movement. Other people feel more fluent in, in drawing. Other people feel more fluent in spoken and so the idea is to empower people in their fluency and then to build more resources. And when those 
once they're not so comfortable with show up and you begin to work there, I think there's a real gold mine of information and we're finding that in the studio now. Yeah. So this would be a good time for us to move into the experiential. Okay. And have everybody begin the process. Can we pause for a minute yes. and see if anybody has a question sure. first? Because we by the time we circle back start we'll be somewhere else maybe or we'll have more questions. So I'm curious if anybody has questions or curiosities. Can you talk about the performance aspect? How many people are interested in that? So one of the things that I, that I want to talk that I want to say about performance is that it's been very important in you know to to our particular practice and approach in uh, our institute where we work with people and even train people that performance artists learn a new way of generating performance material. And that the performance artist is also paying attention to their lives as individuals and taking some time for that. So that for the performance artist, it's not only about skill and talent and getting up on stage, but what's going on with you before and after you're on stage. What kind of a human being are you feeling yourself to be? And what kind of a life are you living? And in my autobiography, that became incredibly compelling for me because I was fine as long as I was on stage. But take me off stage, oh boy, not so fine. And that's what really set me on my path. And Anna Halpern also has a great tradition of deconstructing performance. How many of you know about Anna Halpern? She's considered the mother of postmodern dance. So she really, her, perhaps uh, the hallmark of her root tradition is the way in which not only did she redefine dance as dance is for everyone and everyone is a dancer and let's figure out how to make that for real because it sounds terrific. It's a great bumper sticker. But how do, how do we really make that for people? And, and also to deconstruct performance art, so that performance art was dealing with the real social issues of the time. And she also deconstructed uh, an approach to dance which allowed people to work from what she called pedestrian, or we might call natural movement, rather than formulaic and patterned movement. Like ballet, for example, is the clearest example of patterned well, only the highly trained ballet dancer can really perform in that tradition. And so we're looking for a new tradition of dance that is for everyone. We're looking for a democratic relationship with dance <laughs> and expressive arts. So what was the question? Performance. Yeah. I have a question or maybe just a... Can I just say oh, one sure, other sure. thing? The other thing about performance is to give everybody the opportunity to perform. And there's something that's really powerful about that because for us, to come back to metaphor, for us, performance in our work is about that ritualized, challenging act of coming out and being seen and speaking your story and moving your story and painting your story and being witnessed. And that in and of itself is a psychological encounter to really come out and perform something. It can also be a healing experience 
It can give us an opportunity to confront our fears and anxieties. And also, in one of the ways in which we work with performance in our practice is that we kind of ritualize it in a way, so that we, we kind of tend to what, will, what are the ingredients that make it possible for individuals to really come forward and express themselves and be seen. And that's really what, what a performance is. And so we're performing our own stories rather than someone else's. You took the words out of my mouth. I was thinking about authentic movement and the role of the witness. And also, what I find extraordinary is that I'm 56, going to be 57, and the transition from being a movie performer. Always have been an audience member, but the the act of witnessing has been profoundly affected by this kind of work. That though I may not be moving, that that my body is witnessing, and I feel like that this work could have such a uh, rich impact on audience, on audience members, where there's a blurring between the audience member and the performer. Mm -hmm. And then I also have the I love the the whole shamanic tradition of, of healing and dance, and then it moves to the stage, and it almost seems like it, we're, we're moving by off of the stage as a, as a polity. It's just very, very profound to me, mm -hmm. the shift. Mm -hmm. It seems like a really great shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you, you just, you said a lot and you covered a lot. In, in our particular practice, the whole role of the witness is its own dance. And it, we actually have a method to develop witnessing skills uh, and to give feedback that's, uh, that's empathic and non-critical, but also stays in the tradition of the arts and is poetic. And, and maybe, we'll, maybe I'll share a little bit of that with you so that you can have a little bit of a taste of performing and witnessing. Like when I say that, who goes like, oh my god, I don't want to perform. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Oh, cool. <laughs> I do every time I, I mean, you know, I'm performing right now. Every time I have to perform, I thought, oh, God, do I really? Ooh. It's, it's When we're really awake to it, you use the word shamanic, and I, I, I hear you, and I have a lot of respect for shamanic traditions. I, I want to be really honest that we don't use that word to describe our work, and there's a reason for that. And it's not that in our work that healing experiences don't happen. You might even say spiritual experiences don't happen, because when you're really working in the arts, that's going to happen. That's the nature of the arts. It always has been. Think about ancient history. Think about indigenous cultures. It changes our way of thinking. It creates a kind of a body-mind resonance when we dance and move. How many of you have felt that, actually? Oh, good, because, you know, these are words, but it means more if you've actually felt that even for a little bit. Grief has always been involved in everything to me in my lens of looking at, like, grief. Grief. Grief is in joy, grief is in life, death is in life. I loathe to see that it takes grief or a giant crash or a breakdown for someone to come to their appreciation of the indigenous and their natural isness, but it so often is the case. 
interesting What I want is what you want and what I'm hearing you say, which is how do we open up, particularly for, I'm going to say, the adult audience after schooling until death? So not, not looking at the education system in any of those places. Workers, parents, what's the way to get people back into this without it having to take the life crisis to get them there? That's what my great ache is. That's, that's an interesting idea. Rilke said that great art is born out of necessity. Mm -hmm. The theater has a great tradition of joy and lament living side by side. I think that we all probably could think about that question and, and speak to it and dream about it endlessly. I know that as a teacher and, and as an artist, what I want is for people to, to kind of own creativity on their own terms and for me, uh, the best way to do that is through the arts. And, and I'd love to see that happen, like, on a daily basis, <laughs> on a weekly basis. I'd love to see that be part, an integrated part of our lives, just like paying the bills is. But, you know, as Einstein said, we are dancing our dreams, which include nightmares. It's just the way it is. And uh, one of the one of the really one of the things that art does offer our world today is that it does offer a creative way to respond to suffering and conflict. I think that's beautiful, and that was always the way in in ancient cultures. That's my feeling about it. Okay, shall we have an experience? We're going to start with some movement, and this is an interesting situation, this room and all of these chairs. <laughs> it's a relatively small space for all of you bodies. I'd like to start, put your things under your chair. We're going to start off right where we are, which is in chairs. I'm going to offer up some movement metaphors for you, and I'm going to offer up, oh, maybe maybe three different movement metaphors. I'm going to play the role of your movement metaphor coach. And, so, and it'll be a collaboration. So you, you'll, be, you'll be responding in your own way, and I'm just going to give you some prompts. So starting in your chair, the first thing we're going to do is take a couple of minutes to actually notice and feel that we've got physical bodies. Because most of the time, we don't really notice that we've got physical bodies. And by notice, I mean feel our own bodies. So we're going to start with that. So close your eyes. You know, if, if you notice that your eyes need to take a peek, it's perfect. So just begin to follow your own breath sensation. Inhale, exhale. That's a dance that's always going on in you. The dance of your breath for just a minute. And your lungs are filling up and emptying out. And we could say that your inhale and exhale is a rising and falling movement. 
Notice if it feels right to cross your ankles or to place the soles of your feet flat on the ground. What supports your feeling, your own inhale, exhale. And now make it a little bit bigger so that your rib cage kind of rises up and opens up a little bit. And then on the exhale, just kind of sinks down. Really fill up the lungs. And your rib cage will kind of lift and expand and open up a little bit. And then empty the lungs. And your neck might even soften a little bit. Now we're going to add our shoulders, arms, and hands. And you're just going to, in your chair, just lift up with the inhale and then release down with the exhale. And just repeat that cycle a few times. Extend all the way up through the fingertips and release down. And let your head release all the way down. And just listen into your body how far down you want to go with that support of the chin. I notice some of you are, are kind of letting yourself, your hands go all the way down to the floor. Some are just letting the hands rest on your thighs. So lifting up. And releasing. in a while in this cycle, just pause like a little snapshot and just notice how this movement moment feels to you. So lifting up, inhale, releasing down and surprise yourself. Just begin to pause at different moments. Notice the physical sensation in the pause. And also notice any feeling quality. Or if you will, an image that comes up for you. So you're lifting and dropping, rising and falling.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Creativity Conversations. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. For the full version of this conversation, you can find it on the Creativity Conversations YouTube playlist linked in the description of this episode. For more from Arts at Emory, be sure to follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and on Instagram at Emory Arts.